Welcome to Oxboards, the podcast by students and their professors at the University of Oxford. I'm Amelia Glover-Dewsbury, an undergraduate classics and English student at Regent's Park College, and today I'm joined by Fiona McIntosh, Professor of Classical Reception and Fellow of St Hilda's College, and Constanza Guthenka, Professor of Greek Literature at Corpus Christi College. We'll be discussing the discipline of classical reception and asking how the consideration of the interesting afterlife of ancient texts is important for the subject of classics, thinking about the long and continuing engagement of more modern work with these classical cultural models. I thought we could start by outlining classics as a discipline and how then reception can be understood as a development of that. So could you perhaps give us a little bit of a background on the legacy of classics as a subject and how that plays into the relationship between reception and classics? Yes. So there are various ways in which you can think about the relationship between classics and reception, both locally and then broadening out in a way. On a very simple level, maybe starting from the broader frame and then moving further in, is that classics and reception in very many ways are not really separable because everything we know about the ancient world comes in a mediated form. Right? It's not that there is simply a body of texts and of objects and of ideas that are there on their own and we just need to know enough in order to access them. But every single thing comes in a, in a shape through channels that themselves have their own histories and their own contexts. So even if you take a classical text, there is a reason and there's a history how it got to be printed. There's a long history of transmission. There's a question of what gets preserved, at what point, for what reason. And these reasons can range from top-down strategic and ideological to completely haphazard and didn't make it into the bin. Anything is possible. So even picking up a text is not neutral and, uh, and comes with its own preconceptions. Before we even get to who we are as readers, what we do, how we read, how we've been trained, and all of that. When it comes to classics as a field, the fact that we call the study of the ancient Greek and Roman world classics itself is, is not a neutral term. So something classical, whatever exactly we mean by that, is something that implies a sense of temporal difference, but also something that is still present. It implies a sense of normativity often, it implies a sense of value, and it implies a sense of uh, wanting to preserve something because value is ascribed to it. Um, And in, in this context, the cultural objects, if you want, of the Greek and Roman world, broadly speaking, have been in this place, um, certainly in an institutional context, for a long time as something that is that was thought to be able to carry this kind of value, uh, both in and of itself, but also in terms of how institutional structures grew around it. So in many ways, the, the, the reason why it seems so baked into the system, both at the level of the institution, but also certainly in this country, at the level of explaining how or measuring what an education is, uh, again, has both a, a historical trajectory, but also can be explained out of um, historically specific, historically made, and therefore also historically contingent reasons, right? So if you look elsewhere in the world, it doesn't necessarily have to be the same way. There's, there are, of course, classical traditions in other, in other cultures, uh, in, in other areas of the world. And increasingly, classicists take an interest also in these comparative aspects to see how classical traditions and their study relate to each other. And just to give you an example about whether something is self-evident or not, for example, in in my own work, I've been studying the 
the generation of classical knowledge and classical scholarship in, in an American context, which is really instructive because there you can see how the knowledge of Latin and Greek on the one hand fits into an expected sense of this is what gives you an education, but on the other hand, it, it can be too much of a good thing. So there is also a, a, a moment of suspiciousness towards a particular kind of education, which of course, you know, in the context of a revolutionary country making itself, um, hanging on to certain traditions, but being willing to let go of, of them at the same time, crystallizes really well that, um, that classics is not per se part of the fabric and doesn't necessarily have to be, and that it can also stand for an awful lot of things. And what about specifically at Oxford? There's an interesting history with classics being something that used to qualify everyone that studied here, as well as elsewhere in the institutions of the British Empire, such as the civil service in India and that kind of thing. Do you think that, given that context, if we're going to approach you know, the rallying cry to decolonise the curriculum, can you ever really decolonise classics as a subject when it's so concerned with empire in terms of content, but also given its weaponization for propagating the sense of empire we have had in this country historically? I think I think that's a really, really important question. And, and that's definitely one that I think classicists everywhere are beginning to ask. And absolutely here in Oxford, as you say, it's essential that we think about this question very seriously. I think that Oxford is beginning to do that. Um, it's not just, of course, in reception studies. I mean, Constanza's already spoken about the comparative work she's doing um, uh, by looking at, at the position of classics as a discipline and also as a practice um, more broadly in, in, in the United States. And that is very interesting because there was at least officially from the position of Oxford no moment in the teaching of classics no moment when classics institutionally was anything uh, other than as you say um, at the centre of empire and um, the discipline in a way was was a major instrument of empire as you said there were of course individuals who may be um, notably um, Gilbert Murray who was um, the professor of Greek here from 1908 onwards and uh, in um, the 1920s was a founder of the League of Nations Union and uh, was really really active on the international stage and for his time um, was offering um, a very different perspective on classics and in some ways was doing interestingly and importantly classical reception before um, anyone recognized it as as such so recently however people have like Constanza begun to think about the history of the discipline and um, we definitely encourage students now to be very conscious of the history um, especially in relation to empire. But I think that, as I say, is not simply happening in reception studies, but it's also, of course, happening, I think, brilliantly in ancient history, where, um, you know, the ancient history that, that I learnt as an undergraduate was absolutely about the Western Mediterranean. And what I find absolutely riveting and exciting is how ancient historians are working, you know, way beyond, um, uh, way east, you know, um, thinking comparatively, um, as you're saying, the literary people who kind of talk to the ancient historians are thinking not only about Homer, but Homer in relation to other Near Eastern texts, but also historians are looking in to sub-Saharan Africa. And, you know, this is, of course, the Greco-Roman world, a world that, um, you know, definitely during the Cold War, we never were taught, and they are giving my age away. But equally, no one, of course, because of the Cold War, thought about, you know, what was happening 
uh, in the classical world around the Black Sea region, for example. Mm. And that has all been a great discovery, not only to um, archaeologists, but also to ancient historians and, and in turn, um, reception people, where we have wonderful conversations about discovering that, of course, um, Medea, the, the woman who famously kills her children, came from, uh, um, you know, um, Georgia, modern-day Georgia, and she is there um, in, you know, people are called Medea, and she is heroized extraordinarily, you know, we might say from a Western perspective, um, in monuments and so on. And that is because she is both there, unbelievably brilliant pioneering uh, woman figure who was wronged and of course that's why in uh, multiple traditions she ends up killing her children but as we know um, as you know readers of, of classical texts you know and um, particularly Euripides that there were multiple reasons why Medea killed her children so in some ways you know as um, Constanza has alluded to, this is a changing field and that's what's so exciting about it. And yes, reception is changing it in, and in some ways we're all doing reception. We're all thinking about how, you know, people of Georgia have received Medea, for example. Um, what, you know, were the relations between uh, Alexander and those peoples um, in India that he... Uh, that he conquered and so on. So I think in many ways, and we're only at, of course, at a very early stage, um, people are beginning to think about, well, understand absolutely the limitations of our essentially 19th century reading of classical texts that really did last for most of the 20th century, but happily in the 21st are being... Uh, revisioned, looked at again um, in the light of, of, of new research. Mm. Um, and reception studies itself is also changing with the field, right? It's it's not a sort of static methodology um, th that relates to a changing field or not, but itself keeps developing and is part in that sense, I think, of a larger and in a way more comprehensive and inclusive sense of classics as something, so as a field, and some prefer simply to call it the, the study of the ancient world, that is expanding both spatially, geographically, and temporally. Right? And in, in that sense, I think reception studies is, a, is an area in which some of those questions can now, or now have a sort of a foundation to be addressed very explicitly, but it doesn't mean that this is the only area within classics where those conversations can take place. And to just return to reception and to contextualise these conversations, how would you go about defining reception? I suppose um, the most important thing is, the easiest way to think about it, is that it is literally how texts, objects have been received, how, how the receiver makes meaning but also shapes meaning so um if i pass constanza a ball um she leaves her her finger marks even if we can't see it there are traces of constanza's um person on that ball and if she passes it to someone else um we end up all of us leaving traces and the reception reader, scholar, whatever, needs to accept and understand that there are those traces and also try to um, analyse them, to think about what does it mean. Um, I mean, in some ways, the idea I, it suggests that we're all in one time scale. Mm. But usually, of course, it's passing through time and over generations. I, 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 so it's a receiver, how we receive texts and how we need to be aware that those texts have been received by others before they've come to us. One um, uh, thing that I particularly like 
um, some people think reception studies came, you know, into fashion at a time when we were all, you know, consuming like crazy in the 90s. Um, uh, and they say what you need to think about is not... Reception studies isn't saying the consumer is always right. What they're saying is the consumer is always there somewhere at the point oh, at the point of the transaction. And I think that is a neat way of summing up the relationship. And would you say that reception, having entered almost as a new methodology within the discipline, was at first met with any resistance in an academic context, considering the potential for it to be viewed as diluting the institutionalised discipline and as a, a shift for canon? And how does that all figure into what reception studies is now? Well, I mean, new approaches, in a way, always meet with resistance. Um, I think when it comes to the field of reception studies, that of course itself now has its own history as well. And in many ways, it's it's not, <clears throat> it's also difficult, or I think it's maybe not only productive for a field to define itself as being the new counter model, right? Because you run into difficulty at some point over being able to maintain that kind of outsider position right? and in many ways many people now working in reception studies are perfectly established in that sense which also goes to what we said earlier about the fact that the field of reception studies itself keeps changing I think you know, once you start saying but how sure can we be about the canon on which we build a field uh, the foundations on which we build, build a field the questioning the methodologies you use that always opens a kind of moment where you where you're sort of standing on the edge right and where it's sort of both dizzying and slightly vertiginous and people react differently to that and also react differently to that at different points in their own um in their own work right um so yes it has met with resistances and i think many of us who've, who've worked in that field have found that on the other hand, what, what we certainly notice is, so I think we find that many of our colleagues who define their work as being concerned with questions of reception, find that they often, they provoke reactions, either from within the field or from within their own training as well, so in themselves as well that are you know, cognitively dissonant and can create tensions and throw up paradoxes and just require quite a lot of thinking through it carefully, right? And they're often not resolvable either. On the other hand, what Fiona and I certainly have found teaching reception together mostly for the last 10 years is that also we, we now have you know, we see new student generations, both in Oxford, but also students from outside Oxford who come here for their graduate work, who've grown up with a sense of a different range of questions, different expectations, who've done, who've encountered thinking about reception in one form or another since they were at school or at university, and, and who approach it with a, with a new form of confidence as well, that's really important. And that's really important for the field, and that's really important for us. As far as we know, the, the field hasn't gone away. Um, I think disciplines are pretty hardy creatures, and they, they, they do change. But um, it's, you know, it can, be, it, it can be scary for researchers, whether they are in the field or are slightly outside of the field, to consider the possibility that, you know, it's not just a question of, Fiona mentioned the ball that's being passed on and that has different finger mark, fingerprints on it, but the question of, you know, how much of a ball there is in the first place, right? And um, people in reception studies often like to operate with different kinds of images and, and metaphors as well, but one that's stuck with me very much and that I've used or found that I come back to 
uh, is actually not by someone who recently worked in reception studies, but is by Michael Baxendale, who's a, an art historian who died a, a couple of years ago, about 10 years ago. And he was very instrumental in studying, in a way, the classical tradition in early modern art in particular. And he has a wonderful little known book that is a reflection on, on memory and uh, is sort of partly autobiographical. But he starts by thinking about an image of a, of a sand dune in, the, in, in Morocco or in Algeria. Uh, which he has as a postcard on his desk. And he makes this point that dunes are created by, by lamination. So they're subject to the wind and to different cross-secting winds, right? So never wind just coming from one direction. And the sand gets sort of compacted over time. But because the wind keeps changing, the, the compacting and the sort of layering, which is never even, keeps changing over time as well. And dunes also, apparently, respond to other dunes around them. So a dune will grow differently and will keep developing in terms of its strata differently over time, depending on what the other dunes are doing. Right? And so there is both a sense of stability that's being built up, but also a sense of changeability. And if you think about a dune, it's not like there's the underlying dune and then all the other stuff gets built on top of it and you try and get back down to the original dune. It's just made up of sand. Right? And, and I think classics is not so different. <laughs> I was going to say, that's really beautiful. <laughs> I love that. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful um, image for, as you say, reception, but absolutely for classics as well. Mm. Thinking just one thing I would like to add, um, the thing, and we've discussed this before, I think the really important difference in Oxford in relation to reception is that we've tried, and I think succeeded, in making sure that it remains at the heart of the discipline. Mm -hmm. So you can't come to Oxford and do a separate master's in classical reception, which may put some people off, but I think we would say really don't be put off by that mm -hmm. because it means that we genuinely believe that everyone who's doing classics is really doing some kind of reception. Yeah, because there's ancient reception or reception in mm -hmm. antiquity, um, late antiquity, early modern or medieval, early mm -hmm. modern and so on and so forth. Or just the question how you get to have the text in front and of you. And just yeah? as you said about mm -hmm. transmission, exactly. Mm -hmm. And thinking specifically about the kind of texts that come up in reception studies, Poetry Post-1900, which is the focus of the paper that you both teach on, seems to have been a particularly significant moment for reception. Why do you think that was? And are there any examples within that topic that you would be able to expand on at all to consider what the shift was in this period considering English language texts? I think when we first... Um, uh put on the paper and and it's quite interesting before that it was a 19th century victorians and the classics paper um and so it was quite bold to put a paper since 1900 <laughs> which of course potentially and increasingly runs to the present oh, but yeah. in 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 the early years people absolutely brilliantly and and interestingly worked on maybe first world war poetry and the classics and thought about you know how important homer was to uh, people who were at gallipoli say um and inevitably looked at the 1920s the great kind of moment of high modernism as some people see it and particularly you know T.S. Eliot the wasteland and and so on and, and and unfortunately on our paper you can't work on Joyce's Ulysses but that also inevitably would be um, a really wonderful text to to look at in that context so yes Eliot and you know Ezra Pound and so on and the war poets um, you know Rupert Brooke and Wilfred Owen and so on uh, would be important but what we found I think in recent years has been really exciting is there are so many contemporary poets um, especially sort of spoken word artists who are 
turning in really um, exciting way to classical material and um, especially epic texts, as you know, we've recently kind of thought about. And in a way, uh, what these spoken word artists, um, what makes them want to engage with, with say, Homer is realising that Homer is part of an improvisatory uh, oral tradition and that is a living tradition that they too can contribute to. And, you know, maybe the most um, obvious example in recent years is an artist like um, Kay Tempest and definitely from brand new ancients onwards, um, we have, I think, found really exciting work, haven't we, by students from many contemporary poets. And I have to say it's usually um, not only our doctoral students who may be kind of teaching on the course, but also our wonderful undergraduates um, who are taking the paper, who discover a lot of literally new material hot off the press, isn't it? And uh, we love it. And mm. uh, <laughs> It was... It, it, it was very instructive to us when we taught this paper through the lockdowns that, for example, the quality of the work, this was one area where, where people clearly were in a way de-skilled because they didn't have access to libraries and all of that. So there were some, some gaps and everyone felt that very acutely. But at the same time, because people were also working on relatively contemporary material where there just wasn't shelves and shelves of secondary literature available, they had to rely on themselves to work just with that material in front of them and produce some really extraordinarily good work. Right? And so in, in that sense, it was, uh, it was very instructive to us to realise mm -hmm. that this, this seemed to be a corner of classics teaching going online um, where, where this provoked productive new thinking absolutely yeah and in terms of the way in which ancient work has been received in 20th century texts we have kind of illusion and also the retranslation and the reimagination of ancient authors one good example of that is the poems of catullus and how the different translations especially in recent years have understood the work and and, and made these very slight but very interesting changes what can reception tell us about these uses of ancient texts and the significance of these various interactions and how should we go about considering these mechanisms of reception? I mean, in a way, it goes back to your, the, the question with which you started, which is how central is classics to a, an image of, of elitism, of being the establishment, of being the centre. For, for Anglophone or British poets, for sure, in the 20th and early 21st century, it is still very difficult, in a way, to approach classical texts that have that label without somehow associating a certain sense of canonical position with them, right? And so in that sense, even if you, even before you, before anyone starts engaging with them on a detailed level, there is the question of perception. Right? And so that already puts those works and those poems, for example, into a sort of reception relationship, right? Beyond that, I think both for the creative practitioners of various kinds who deal with ancient forms, texts, materials, objects, thoughts, and the, the scholars as well, I think we are luckily also at a point, and scholars are at a point, I think creative practitioners have been at a point for a lot longer, that it's, it's not simply about excavating the illusions, right? Uh, there are some wonderful poets out there who work extremely subtly with the exact wording of a text and where these illusions multiply and work and add an extra layer. Um, on the other hand, I think we all know as readers of poetry that you can, you, you can read a poem and enjoy a poem and get something out of a poem regardless of how much you know exactly the same things the, the author knows. And sometimes the poem knows more than the poet does as well. 
so I think methodologically we've moved away from just trying to find the illusion because, and you know, this also shows you something about the, the teaching and the researching of classics to say, oh, look, there's a link or look, there's a similarity is a first step. And then you need to say, and, and so what? So what do we do with that? And what do we, or you, know, you not, not just we, but an, as an individual reader or writer or scholar, where do you think that leaves you, right? So it, it's a first step, but it's not, again, self-evidently the last step. So saying there, you know, it's, it's in text A and it's in text B, that on its own tells you relatively little. And this is only where the work really begins. And I think we see more and more also that, you know, readers have a hunch that there is something that brings together or a resonance between an ancient object or text and um, a 20th century or 21st century object. And then to interrogate what you make of that hunch, you, you may very well arrive at the conclusion to say that, you know, we are a sort of deformed reader. I mean, as a classicist, that's the kind of thing you, you think you recognize because that looks familiar to you. Does that make, in, make it a valid or invalid reading? Again, that depends on your reading, I think, right? And that, again, gets you to the question to say, do we read for trying to prove what a text or an author does? Or are we also reading because the reading is the process and it's something beyond what the object of, of study is, right? But uh, it's, a, it's an important question what we do with those, with those hunches or fuzzy similarities. And, um, and I think this is exactly some of the questions scholars in reception studies are also increasingly asking in very explicit ways, right? And to interrogate themselves to what extent it is all in the classicist's head, if you want, right? I think so. And I, if I um, remember your question, I think um, what I would say is not only do these receptions, these new um, poetic um, responses um, tell us, you know, something about very often um, life now, and, and I'm thinking particularly about um, the really interesting revisionings of especially women poets of E.G. Catullus, as you said um, uh, earlier. Um, they then, of course, really inevitably send us back to um, an ancient text in completely new way don't we and we completely see that text differently and 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 of course never the same way again and and for that reason um all the better because i think the worst thing about any kind of learning uh, is that um we think we know the answers whereas yeah. the great thing about reception is you realize not only is things are changing and that mm. actually um we will learn again thanks to someone else's reading and 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 I think that's the biggest takeaway isn't it from from yeah. our, our our paper we hope so yeah. anyway and I think the biggest takeaway I mean to go back to the question of how the field is changing as you said in the beginning how can we can you know how how can classes carry on with their discipline with all of the um, disclaimers that are unnecessary is I think is to move towards a sense of classics as something that is a freestanding field, whatever you call it, and I'm not wet to the name classics, but to study it in a way that tries to avoid the exceptionalism that's often been baked into the term classics as well, right? And exceptionalism in the sense, not just of being exclusive somehow, but of thinking that somehow it's better than others of the same kind. And, um, and I think you can be as detailed and specialized a classicist as you want to be. And it's great if there's space for that. But I think that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a zero sum game with the value of other fields of cultural study, right? So if, if I could start it all over again and had, you know, three more lives on, and time, I would, 
Um, I would have been just as happy to study a completely different culture or be at home in a, in a very different discipline. And I think being able to recognize that it is a, that something can be a worthwhile field of inquiry without essentializing its value to say it comes just from that material because it's simply the best material there is around. I think when we make that step, it'll be a better field. Yeah, and following on from that, considering all this literature from Greece and Rome, there is also the question of other literature from the same period, but also from other parts of the world. That then brings in the study of comparative literature, which is, of course, a different approach to reception, but can certainly be considered as related to the concerns and operations of reception studies. What do you think then is the relationship between the two disciplines and how are they similar and how are they different and how do they work in tandem given this similar concern? That's a really good question from a, a British um, perspective, but equally from a North American one. Um, in many ways, comparative literature has not enjoyed a long tradition um, in in. British higher education I mean of course there have been exceptions but I think we now recognize that that is one of the reasons why classical reception um, in many ways was able to take root much quicker here in Britain than it did in in America because classicists could teach things that um, in America maybe would have been difficult because they would have been taught in mm-hmm comparative literature Uh, and therefore classics as an area study as it is you 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 do you do literature history you know philosophy and art um was already in conversations with other Mm -hmm. disciplines because it had to be and Mm. wanted to be and here in oxford that meant particularly philosophy where you did ancient philosophy and modern philosophy as part of your um classics degree Mm -hmm. So that ability to talk to other disciplines and also not having to worry that you were treading on other people's toes, I think meant that actually reception could really embrace much of the practice of comparative literature and indeed, of course, learnt Mm -hmm. from it. I think sometimes in Britain um, there was a sort of caricature of comparative literature which um, often presumed it was like putting two texts side by side and only looking at them formally. So, you know, how they were written rather than when they were written, why they were written. And of course, that is completely contrary to how classicists work you know we are we worry about context and how context um shapes um a text and produces a text and classical reception and the theory around that was very concerned about context producing context and how that shaped text just as importantly as it was about the context that had received the text through time and had shaped the text as well. So the answer, my answer would be, yes, it's very like comparative literature, but it's absolutely in practice and shares, you know, many of the strengths of comparative literature. And increasingly, as you're saying earlier, Constanza, when it's looking especially to trying to understand the classic, not just through time, but also across cultures, but it definitely is not doing um, anything sort of naively comparative mm-hmm. um, because it, it really, like the best of all literary practice, is concerned, yes, with how things are written, but also when they were written, why were they were written, and, and, and so on. Um, but with maybe something that comparative literature still as practice that really important sense of reading through time as well. Yeah, and thinking then about reception as a much newer field within classics, 
where do you think it is headed in terms of new research and development within the discipline? Well, I think we're looking forward to that as much as you are <laughs> in, in terms of not quite knowing where it will go. But I think one thing importantly, and this is to pick up from the question of comparative literature, it, it's not just literature. It's not just a field of literary studies. I mean, the literary studies in, in general are also always moving and developing and interrogating what a literary artifact is. And you know, literature as a term itself is, of course, a, a modern term in, in many ways. Reception studies, I think, in within classics has the advantage that literary artifacts are only one part of what it covers. Other areas of reception emerge where it's clear, I think, also that... So both other areas can be integrated into reception studies. So you, you don't just look at poetic texts and their later reception, for example, but you look at material culture, at material objects, uh, you look at non-fictional, non-literary texts. Um, so you have, you can have scientific texts, you can have historiographical texts, you can have philosophical texts. But once you start doing that, of course, you also realize that, um, in a way, new interactions with already existing fields are are there. So new interactions are possible where old interactions were already there, but we wouldn't have called it reception studies. So in a way, you know, people who study historiography know full well that, that you can look at history in a reception-oriented way. Philosophers, in many ways, have no problem with the idea that you can contextualize a historical, a philosophical idea and you can historicize it, but at the same time, most philosophers, certainly in uh, in in Oxford or in the in the British tradition of doing philosophy or doing ancient philosophy, find it perfectly normal to say, well, I can I can situate Plato in the fifth century Athenian context, but on the other hand, what I'm really interested in is whether this is a good philosophical argument, right? So this kind of presentism, which in in literary studies make people go um, a little weak at the knees because it seems <laughs> it seemed to do something very different is you know in other fields as a sort of expectation within their field totally possible already and so I think we're also learning how for example you know a political scientist would read a Greek tragedy or political theorist um, can be very different from how a classicist would read it but would actually be much closer to how someone who comes from reception studies might make be, might be able to make space for it, right? And so I think really probing what the different um, expectations and frames of reference for these different subfields are, and bringing that much more to the fore and being more explicit about that is certainly one area in which reception studies is going. So I think it's moving away from making the poetic artifact its type A exhibit in many ways. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. And I, I, I'm thinking another maybe uh, sort of rather crude way of, of, of adding to what you just said, Constanza, would be that the great thing about reception studies in classics is that you have to have conversations, um, you know, with with colleagues in other disciplines, and then it, it that doesn't in any way threaten the discipline, even though in the past people might have been anxious about that. Um, in it's not only what I think so many um, humanities subjects are trying to do, and that is to have genuine interdisciplinary uh, discussion but realizing that it's only collectively mm. and I think um, <laughs> in a way classicists in an area study know that intrinsically but now our dialogues and discussions are ranging as classicists much more widely with colleagues really across the whole university and as mm. you I mean I, I may be rather narrow and limited 
in my understanding. So I may be only having conversations with people in the humanities, but as you rightly point out, the great excitement about the future is that indeed we'll be having serious conversations with people who, you know, maybe now do something called history of science, but will be doing it in conversation with classical reception people. History of knowledge. And history of knowledge more broadly. Yeah, and um, to finish up, we started off by talking about how classics had an imperial legacy and within that, an elitist legacy. Reception then gives classics a slightly different foothold in that the access point is the 20th century text that has received the ancient work. Do you think then that reception has a role in democratising the subject and that it gives students of more diverse backgrounds than than that of those who would have studied it previously an entry into it that they would not have had previously and do you think that is important for the way it is taught for the pedagogy of of the whole subject i i think absolutely that's the case but i and and you're absolutely right it's very often exciting new texts and and definitely you know in recent years there's been a lot of fiction in interesting very interesting ways, you know, that has thought about the lost voices of, for example, the Trojan War. Um, and I know that has been very, um, a very important access point to maybe studying classics for, mm. for down the line for many people. But I suppose um, we should say, picking up on your point, that, that really reception is by no means simply literary. Perhaps the most important access point now for most people is is of course gaming video um games and sorry i'm showing my ignorance here but i think everyone knows that um that i mean i think ancient history above all um has does extremely well because people first uh learn about um greek and roman antiquity through um Am I am I right? Mm. I mean, I think so. Especially, you know, I mean, and, I, and it's not gendered either. I think it's young men and and women. And um, so I think there's so many really exciting access points um, into classics that young people make. That I I definitely, if I've ever visited primary school, just people love talking and know so much more about I think the Greek gods than I do um, after they've at first sort of heard um, and learnt you know from usually unbelievably uh, exciting teachers the sad thing at the moment is often that connection is lost at the beginning of secondary school but I think in in many other ways you know there are enough wider kind of sort of culture text almost you know but but usually through computer games i think is that i mean um even more than some of the texts but i know and we are in great um awe of so many of these brilliant young and kind of seasoned writers who rework the classics and then bring new audiences as you say and and yeah call that democratizing knowledge but i and in some ways, you know, maybe classics has been luckier um, than, than, you know, maybe other um, literary disciplines, modern literary disciplines in, in for precisely those reasons. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the important bit is where you. Um, I think what makes it accessible or what makes classics accessible is, is not necessarily to slap the reception label on it, but to to figure out where the points are, where classical materials are worth thinking about in a way, or thinking with, and how to evaluate or you know how where to put value on the engagement with any kind of ancient material that is happening and that is possible. And so if, if you talk about you know, things being out in the public sphere or the access through games or through children's literature, it's not that there wasn't children's literature in Victorian Britain that 
dealt with uh, with the classical world. There was plenty of that, right? So in, in that sense, you, you can find the equivalent of the kind of all present classical allusions, associations, all of that uh, in broader public culture, you can find very easily, right? So that, that doesn't, that didn't start 10 years ago. On the other hand, I think the important step, and this goes back to your very first question as well, is to say, there's a difference between saying, how does that work and what can you do with that? And how, why is it exciting for someone to, to do something with an ancient story um, or a text or an object or an idea? Or do we say the only way to do it well is if you've had X amount of years of language training or you do it in a specific context and you do it in a specific institution and you do it in a specific measurable way, right? And I think that's the big difference in a way. And it doesn't invalidate, um, it doesn't invalidate the, the, the language learning or the university context or the specialized research but it means a greater awareness of the the plurality of methods and forms of knowing and forms of knowing about antiquity including creative approaches to it um, and thinking very hard also about the creativity implied in in research at the same time right um, and i think if if that shifts and becomes less single-minded in a way that is also where new possibilities really come in. Yeah, well, thank you both so much for joining me and for that wonderful conversation. Is, um, is there anywhere that anyone wanting to know more could perhaps look for further resources uh, on, on reception on, on this topic? I, they may well um, take a look at um, one of the faculty's research projects, which is called APGRD, which stands for the Archive of Performances of Greek and Roman Drama. If you go to the Classics faculty website, you can find it very easily or you can find it separately. And I'm sure, um, you know, we can give um, a link to that after. And there are lots of learning resources, um, which I think people would find interesting and helpful, you know, short guides, lots of audio visual stuff and some interactive um, kind of ebooks all free, you know, to download. So um, yeah, take a look at that. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you both so much again. And thank you to anyone listening for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Oxpods. If you enjoyed it, please do recommend to a friend and check out our episodes from other channels too. To keep up to date with episode releases, to suggest ideas for new episodes, or to get involved with recording, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or go straight to our website at www.oxpods.co.uk.